Welcome to the Capital Mosaic Podcast. You're joining us for the story series. This week, Phil Crawford talks about the identity of humanity and its place in the first act of the story. Enjoy. So this, uh, this series, I don't know um, if, if it's really landed for many of you. For, it's one of those difficult things to kind of um, convey when some of us have kind of been living in this particular series for a while now. Uh, because we've been quite um, uh, captured by the idea of um, reading scripture and really, again, uh, refreshing for some of us our, um, our thinking and renewing some of the ideas and for the first time for others, really getting it that when we talk about reading scriptures, the scriptures, the Bible, we, are, we, we know that in some sense there is an overarching meta-story and if we don't actually have a good understanding of that meta-story, according to N.T. Wright, uh, it makes it really difficult to read um, some of the, the more detailed parts of it, some of the events, some of the happenings, some of the, the stories in it, in it, and some of the content in it, because it's hard to relate it back or to relate it to anything. But when we uh, have really percolating in our mind and our hearts the overarching story of Scripture... Um, and this is the thought that Chris brought us to us in the first, in the first session that, that we did, as to the way that we read Scripture and the way that we see Scripture in our lives and how we play with it or how it plays on us. And um, uh, that for some of us, it will, it will need to uh, require breaking really some old habits and, and developing some new ones about dealing with Scripture and um, uh, Justin, when he um, talked to us, um, introduced us to the idea that uh, when we look at, think about this meta story, that there is a main character, and like in every good story, one of the things you get to know the main character, and one of the things you ask, what is it, why is he the main character, and what is the, the intention of this main character? And so we began Act One, and Act One uh, of the story of what we broke with. So some look at it as five acts, we are looking at it as six acts. So this, this meta-story of scripture uh, for us will have six acts in it. And Act 1 began with Justin, um, when he sort of did chapter 1 of Act 1, and I'm doing chapter 2 of Act 1. Um, so Justin basically brought us his key ideas or his takeaway thoughts about Act 1, chapter 1, was uh, that this story gives us great hope. Um, it's about a creator God who is the main character. And it begins by taking chaos and changing or capturing that chaos and through the power of his word, turning it into some kind of form. And he shapes the form and his intention is to work on it and move it to fulfillment. So there's some fullness in the form. And God's first act was to fill this form with peace and with beauty and with potential. And we end up seeing that this character, main character story, he is good. And what he created is very good. So let's go on. It's chapter one. For me, chapter two of this... It's like um, doing this 
preparing for this and or going through the whole the whole exercise of understanding this this meta story and looking at the five acts which we have been doing some of us have been doing since last year or the beginning of this year um, so my mind is just swimming with so many things I think has to be said and yet in 20 minutes we've got to try and capture chapter 1 of Act 1 um, which is absolutely how do you do that because I think I, I worked it out when Mich- I was telling Michelle um, last week when I was trying to working on for tonight so I, how do I get this down to this and she said, what's the main idea? Well, at the moment, there's 10 main ideas. <laughs> and I don't think that I can drop any of them because they're all so important. So I kind of, and then said, don't do that to us. Pick one. And so I, I have, I've kind of picked one idea, which for me is probably the one that just resounds the most for me. When I read this story, when I go through chapter the Acts 1, this is the one that probably has the most... Personal, I have the most personal identity with because it's, it helps me send my own journey in life and, and the discovery to, of coming alive in my own life. The thing, that, the, the thing that's captured my imagination for the second chapter of Act 1 is how humanity knows, finds, and discovers his identity, their identity. <coughs> Um, I grew up in Mount Monganui, and in the 60s, when I was kind of starting to enter my teenage life, the Mount Monganui and Tauranga, Tipuki, Tapapa, Arataki, Papamoa, all that surrounding area was highly a Maori population. And so a lot of my friends were Maoris, and there were a number of Marais around, and so it would be quite often on weekends you would end up going with your friends to a hui, to a tangi, to a wedding, to special meetings. And the thing that used to strike, strike me every time I go, that's how, what a different world it is to the one I live in. And even though I didn't know it at the time, when I now think back on it, every time these people gathered and when they did their thing together, there was such a strong identity of who they were. And they could together come and be one and, and move as one because their identity was really, really clear. And I compare that to myself, who are a typical Pakeha, you know, sort of Caucasian, um, and our nuclear family, and for me, and a fairly dysfunctional nuclear family, um, to, to go there and to sit with some of my friends who I knew were just as much trouble as me at school and got into trouble as much as I did. But when they were at this place, they were good people. You know, there was something that welded them together, something that made them who they were in, 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 in this place of, of their, uh, being with their extended family and the wider community. And that was because they had an identity, they knew what it was. I remember when I first discovered this for myself. I was in my 20s when I'd come through a pretty torrid youth, um, teenage time, and coming into my 20s. Now, someone asked me, um, what does Crawford mean? Now, I know that my, um, my ancestors, my family line, are Scottish, but I never ever stopped to ask the question, uh, 
what does Crawford mean? And it was like an aha moment that I discovered that Crawford actually is a Scottish name. And my cousin told me that um, William Wallace's grandmother was a Crawford. And I suddenly had identity. I know who I am, you know. He said, I'm related to Willard Wallace, William Wallace, you know. Um, not, the one, not the one from um, Braveheart, because that story is actually kind of too dramatised. But I do know the true story of Willard Wallace and the, his heart. And the Scottish people cry and quest for you know, their own sovereignty and for peace and for freedom. And that they weren't going to let the tirade of, of English and French and other marauding people that came into their country to take it away from them. And they were warriors and they fought for justice, they fought for peace. And that's in my blood. And then suddenly, I, 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 in, in a really strange way, I found my identity. I know who I am in the world. I'm Scottish. And I'm proud of it, you know. And it's a great heritage. And we're great people. <laughs> well, that's the story I tell myself. <laughs> that's my identity. And, and it was like something came alive in me to discover my identity in the world. I'm more than just Phil Crawford who grew up in Mount Monganui. Yeah, I'm Phil Crawford that has the DNA of William Wallace in my blood. Yeah. <laughs> Incidentally, I don't think there was a bloodline to him, but you know, his grandmother was a Crawford. That's good enough for me. So. Which when I, from my Māori friends, when they sit down and tell their papa and when they relate their stories to their ancestors, they all own it. Because it's part of making who they are. So it's not just the blood that flows through your body, but it's the, and the DNA that's in your molecules and your cells. It's also the story that resonates in here that gives you life and gives me life. And so it's what I see in chapter 2 of Genesis in this act 1 of this meta story. Our identity as human beings. And so I want to... Um, just kind of walk through that with you as quickly as I can because it's kind of like so much in it and I've just kind of boiled it down to some highlights just to try and paint the picture of it and if there's anything that I really want to encourage us in this journey is to not just leave what you take on board about understanding this meta story to what's spoken about on Sunday nights or even in our cell group but to really let it capture your imagination saying I want to become really averse and I want to know this story so it resonates in me so every time I read scripture I know where in the story it fits um, so I'm, I'm just what I'm trying to do is stimulate you to go and do your own study to do your own searching rather than to say I'm going to tell you everything you need to know so you don't need to worry just you know, listen to my message and a few more times and you've got it no. I'm giving you this much of this much of just chapter 2 of Act 1. Let me read to you. Um, the beginning of um, the story of our identity. It's from, Acts chapter, uh, from Genesis chapter 1. At the time God made earth and heaven, before any grass and shrubs and shrubs start to grow... God hadn't yet sent rain on the earth, nor was there anything around the world, around uh, to work the ground, anyone around to work the ground. 
The whole earth was watered by underground springs. By the way, this is from the message if you're wondering what version I'm reading. Um, God had um, God formed man out of dirt from the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. Man came alive, a living soul. Then God planted a garden in Eden in the east. He put this man in it and made him that, that he had just made. God made all kinds of trees growing up from the ground, trees beautiful to look at and good to eat. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden. Also the tree of knowledge and good and evil. God took the man and set him down in the garden of Eden to work the ground and to keep it in order. God commanded the man, you must eat from this tree and you can eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. The moment you eat from that tree, you die. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, a companion. So God formed from the dust out of the ground all the animals of the field and all the birds in the air. He brought them into man and to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called them, each living creature, that was his name. The man named the cattle, named the birds of the air, named the wild animals, but, it didn't, but he did not find a suitable companion. God put the man into a deep sleep. As he slept, he removed one of his ribs and replaced it with flesh. God then used the rib from that man and formed from the man to make woman and presented him to man to, to the man. The man said, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, name to woman, and she was made for man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and braces his wife. They become one flesh, the two of them, man and his wife, were naked but they felt no shame. <coughs> and so we see that um, when Chris and Justin um, highlighted in, in this series that they point out how we should read this text and make sense of it. Their advice was that to keep disciplining ourselves thinking and reading this text through the eyes of the first reader hearers, how they would read it. And this is where I kind of got bogged down because I went away and I thought, okay, I'm going to try and get this when Chris encouraged us to do this and when Justin encouraged us to do it, saying, how, uh, when I read this, what I've just read you, I know that I read it with my Western-educated scientific mind frame. And with almost a lifetime, my lifetime, of um, fundamentalist Christian, evangelical Christians' interpretation on this. And so, if I stop and try and ask the question, how would the first readers look at this? It's, it's really interesting. I discovered a couple of um, three different um, scholars who um, are in, uh, an expert of Hebrew, which it was first written into, and how it is translated from Hebrew to England, English. And what do you know? 
three different vastly ideas about you know, how you interpret these Hebrew words that make up this text into English. And it reminded me again that when we read scripture um, in English, we have to keep reminding ourselves that it is a translation. It is not the actual words it was written in. And there are some things and ideas in Hebrew that cannot be easily put into English words. We get them better when they're told to us in story. And this is, I guess, what um, Justin was trying to help us see. When we look at Genesis, we need to understand this is a poem. This is a play. This is artistry of, of language to describe things that are almost indescribable, indescribable. But somehow we're trying to do that so it can be um, invested and passed on through the generations, throughout the centuries. So if we carry that in our mind, and I did as a, when I look at this, how can I help discover my identity as a human being in this story? Because I think that's one of the main themes of Act 1. It gives us the identity of God, and it gives us the identity of us. So here's my attempt at doing that. Okay. Made from dust. Um, I was always taught and always read that that meant God took dust and he put water in it. And there was a human being. And he went, and it started breathing. Done. Created matter, just like that. But... Is that how the first readers would have read it? Is that how they would have seen it? Um, so I, I'm just going to go where I ended up rather than take on the journey why I ended up there. And then you can go and find out for yourself just what you think. But the primarily understanding of the first readers was not that God took dust and made man. Rather, that God formed out of, the, out of the creative cosmos that he made, the substance that he made it with, the elements that he made it with, which was his creative, this entity of earth, sky, air, the heavens. Out of that, God created us, which gives us our first idea that we belong and are part of the cosmos that God created. It wasn't that... As opposed to, say, the angelic beings, the celestial beings that lived with God before time and history. We're not made of their stuff. We're made of this stuff, this earth, this cosmos, this matter. We're part of that. This is where we belong. We're connected to it. And if you are familiar with Maori mythology, they will tell you, you know, the word for uh, the whenua. It's the same thing for placenta and land. And, the, and they understand in their, in their genealogy that they came from the land. And it means that they are you know, kind of dust and were made from dust. They are part of it. And we too are a part of it. That's what I think, and made from dust. Um, <coughs> woman was made out of the same stuff as man. Interesting here, the use of the word rib and, um, uh, and that whole story about taking a rib out and forming it. Thing. So we kind of think, man, the model, you know, model one, woman is so good, you can't make it better than that, so let's take a bit of him and make model two, woman. And, um, and we always know that the second is never as great, best as the f- good as the first, right? I think they're much prettier. <laughs> <coughs> 
But there's something about the for for the original story. This how maybe the first readers would have heard this, because English um, scholars who look at the the Hebrew words here interpret the English word is really hard to actually take what is described into English at this moment. What it meant by rib. And for, for many centuries, it wasn't rib that was described, it was side, the side of. So God took Adam and you know, put him in a deep sleep, which is something that is, uh, we won't go there, but we'll just stick with my track at the moment, and you can go and find out what that's about. But he took the side of uh, depicting, or a metaphor for, uh, the woman was made out of the same stuff as man. They're the same. The same kind of uniqueness, the same kind of, of being, and this is what, what that being was. God said, let us make in our own image, in our likeness, which, by the way, was not a conversation. When he said, let's make in our own likeness, in our own image, was not a conversation with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which is how we see it in our time, because in our modern Christianity, we think of God as three and one. And so we think, oh, this must be a conversation amongst himself. But for the Hebrew people, for the first people who heard this, they did not have a concept of a triune triune God. It was Yahweh that they had. So when God said, let make us, and let make man in our image, like us, it's more likely he was talking about the celestial body that existed with him before time and matter. And there's something about that that excites me. Because when he says, what he is describing here, that it speaks of the glory, of the splendor, of God's existence before time was written into the DNA, into the very fiber of humanity. So humanity was given immortality, because that's what they had, that's what the us had. And they had the ability, God gave part of himself to humanity, that's different to the angels, the celestial beings. God put in us the ability to be mini-creators. We can't create in the same way that God creates. But we are mini-created. He gave us the ability to bring into existence things that did not exist. And this creative ability is probably most vividly, and it centers around something that is so uniquely God. And it's us as well. It's amazing. The ability to engender or to speak, to, to spark into life love. Just think about that for a moment. When I was in Form 2, there was this really kind of desired after girl named Barbara Fenton. All the guys really just really wanted her as a girlfriend. And it's probably because she was more developed than the other girl in the class when I think back on it. But um, I was desperately in love with her. <laughs> and, and I tried all ways of getting her to kind of love me. <coughs> um, it's is such an embarrassing story, but <laughs> I just want to show you the the extent in which I was so desirous of her. Um, I had a mate; his name was Philip as well in my class, and he used to do the writing for me. Um, 
And I said, I want, I'm going to get a badge made. It's called a love club badge. This is in Form 2. I come only 11 years old. So. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, and I said, but I haven't got them made yet, but I, I'm going to cut a, a heart shape out of the back of my pad and I want you to draw on it, um, PC loves BF. And I put it in, and he wrote a little note to explain to her that a real badge is coming, but I want to give this to you now. So, at, um, and I said, you go on, at, at afternoon after interval at two o'clock, we have five minute break and we go back to class. So I want you to go to Barbara Fendon and give her this envelope and explain what it is. So he goes up and says, Barbara, Phil wants me to, Phil Crawford wants me to give this to you. And of course, all the other guys heard him say that. So one guy grabs it off her and um, opened it up. And, hey, look at this, everybody. Phil Crawford loves Barbara Fenton. Ah, let's grab him, make him kiss her. And I was just out of there. And I had about 20 guys chasing me. And they, um, uh, and they caught me under the pine trees. And they all sat on me, and I was bawling my eyes out, snot running down my nose, and going about in the pine needles all stuck over my face from the moisture. And they all twist my arm up my back, and they make me go back to kiss Barbara. Oh, kiss Barbara, kiss Barbara. And she looks at me, she says, Crawford, I hate you. And my world fell apart. <laughs> you just can't make somebody hate you. And this very skinny, gingery-haired, ginger-looking girl came up to me. Her name was Helen Phillips. And she said, um, I like you, Philip. I don't care. <laughs> 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 said, Love is something that you cannot manipulate, control, or make happen. It's born in our hearts. We have this creative being. And this is God in us. You don't realize that. This is the DNA of God in us, the ability to create this. When God made the heavens and the earth, the city rested. And again, we think of this rest in context of our culture. We think of it in terms of tired, exhausted, and need a break. I ask the question, was God tired, exhausted, and need a break after creating the earth? I heard a preacher say that once. So this is the only time in God's existence that he became tired and need to rest. <laughs> and he was trying to get everybody to kind of not work on Sundays or play sports so they could all come to church because he was the minister. But it says that God rested. And in this place, humanity dwells with him. And he gave them the authority to take care of this place. When God rested, it was for the Hebrew people, as I understand it, his dwelling place. He came and rested in his dwelling place, preparing for it. And we see imageries of this throughout the Old Testament stories when they were building temple, the tabernacle. There were places that represented God's habitation, where he dwelt. And it was with the objects of his love and affection, his people. So when God created what is known affectionately as the Garden of Eden, the place of his rest, the place of his habitation, he put us human beings with him there in relationship to be in charge, to have authority to care for it, to nurture it on his behalf. It was his habitation 
It was his place of rest. And we lived there with him. We dwelt there with him. This place he wanted us to look after was sacred. It was holy. And we're almost like, you could think of us being priests. Humans were the priests of this holy place. God's place. And we dwelt with him. An an absolute critical aspect of humans identity of humanity's identity is in their relationship with their creator God and that he has all the authority and all his servants and we are his servants and we see that this relational definition described in a picture in a picture way picturesque did you say that word? I wrote it picturesque yeah that's right picturesque and name it that as we lived in this subservient way of being with God, knowing that it is his garden, it is his sanctuary, and we are priests or we are sharing it with him, but it is his, and we are caretakers of it. In that, it was the description, it was like eating from the tree of life. This is how we live. This is how we are well. This is how we are whole. This is how we are complete. This is how we are perfect. That's what the tree of life was sustained us forever. But if Adam were ever to choose not to respond to the authority of the Creator God, it would be like eating the tree, fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the result of it would be death. For the Hebrew people, when they read this, the death was not merely body decaying, but more catastrophically devastating in its separation and broken relationship with created God and the resulting diminished capacity of to be fully human. And this, this diminished capacity looks like this. It's not just a loss of wisdom or God's sense. It has tragically lost our identity. Plunged into a wilderness of dark fog where nothing is seen or understood clearly anymore and reality is vaguely perceived through human self-realisation of the tragedy uh, through human self-realisation of it. And tragically, humanity can scarcely understand that because of their diminished capacity, the ability to perceive reality is deeply distorted by evil. And Peter will kind of walk us through this part of the story, because this is Act 2, the diminished capacity of our human being. But I wanted to point to it right now because... What happened at the end of chapter one of, of Act One, Game Act Two, is that our identity that we were made as part of this cosmos, we're out of it, we belong to it, we are one with it, and we're made with the substances of, of God's celestial being, the ability to be immortal. We were given God's capacity to be creative, to bring in existence things that don't exist. That we were the ability to be able to have given authority and walk with God and shared life with God and was in unity with Him and shared in this peace, this beauty and this <coughs> potential that He built into it and we were part of it. An ongoing story that went from one level of fullness to another to be created, to be invented, to be... That was our identity. And the moment we said, I want to change the relationship with God, we missed the point. We missed the mark. We died and our capacity has become diminished. And we've lost our identity. 
we were watching a TV program the other day which kind of just I, I found horrific. Um, but it's a part of the show about uh, this woman meeting people who have tattoos and about them changing their mind afterwards about tattoos. There was one guy that um, had you know, big earrings, started off with big you know, lobes and his ear, earrings and his lobe, ear lobes, and then went to all kinds of things. And then in the end, what he did is he cut holes in his cheeks so he could put big round um, rings in his cheeks. And so when he smoked, he blew them out here, and when you looked inside, you could see his tongue and his teeth. Um, it was horrendous. And he was talking about some of the other things he died at. But when, he, when the woman asked him, why do you do this? He said, because I am establishing my identity. You know? And I thought, there's human, here's the human story. We have lost our identity, and we're trying to find it again. And we're doing the most bizarre things. This is our distorted thinking of reality to think, if I did this to myself, then I'll become somebody. Because the heart is crying out for identity again. Of what we were when we first made. When first God first created us, that identity. The good news is this. Chris said, when we're reading the story, we um, are, um, there, there is a way that we can make sense of things that are hard to make sense of. There's a central character in the story. And everything that comes before them, if you look at this character and then use this character's life and their words and their teachings and their ways, and it'll help you to interpret what was before it, but it'll also help you to understand what has happened afterwards and what is still to come. So this character is Jesus Christ. And I want to finish with this because, and this is jumping into chapter 4, Act 4, I know. But it's just it's part of the story of identity for me. This gives us incredible hope when we look at Jesus' life to understand that God is working his restoration story out. He is wanting all creation to come back to its original place, its original identity, its original way. So when we look at Jesus, we see this about his life. That he was able to reference himself as knowing the Father. Which is another way of saying the creator God. The Father who is the beginning of all things, the creator of all things. To such an extent, Jesus was able to reference himself to this, that he could describe himself as being one with the Father. And again, another place, he said that if you know me, you know the Father. Paul in Romans talks about the old Adam who died and then the second Adam has been Christ. And, and uh, we don't have time to read it, but in John 14, if you want to read the story about this conversation Jesus has with his disciples about helping them to understand that you've been with me all these, 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 year, these last three years. How you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what I am so excited about that is that when I read that, it's saying, Jesus knows his identity. He, and Paul says, he is the identity of the first Adam. He knows what the relationship is about, and he has it between the creator God and him, servant, <coughs> uh, child, son of this creator God. So, in this knowing of the Father, he was completely aware of his true identity. 
of being a steward, a caretaker, and a keeper of God's sacred place and people. And what we see in Jesus' relationship with God is that he completely understood that he was completely given to this truth. God had all the authority and that he was God's servant. So he could see, we can see in Jesus what restored humanity looks like. From the struggle for a world, particularly in our culture, an enlightened Western culture, scientific culture, is we don't like the idea of the essence of this identity. God as being in charge. God, who is authority, belongs to him, and we are his servants, caretaking his world. He knew his identity because he was the most alive person. You know that he didn't have to strive for God's kingdom power. This identity was so complete that he knew who he was, that he could touch, a woman could touch his robe, and she was healed. It gives us a bit of a picture of what restored humanity looks like. Jesus wasn't a God-free being, like, you know, extraordinary, no one else can be like him. Paul tells us he's the first fruit. He is the first of what God is restoring. And the thing, when we stop to think about this story, the meta story about reality, about humanity, when we discover our identity again, that we were made of this earth, we belong to it, we're part of it, we're intrinsically one with it, and that we were made with the essence of God's creative power and spirit that was breathed into us. And that we were given the job responsibility to care for, to nurture, and to cause to thrive God's habitation. That's the end of Act 1. It goes horribly wrong, Act 2, which Peter will bring to us.